Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Marcus Lefterio. I'm a senior associate solicitor here at Owen Mitchell, specialising in medical law. I'll be your host today as we discuss cancer diagnosis in young people. To do so, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. David Walker, a professor of paediatric oncology at the University of Nottingham, alongside Beth McCann, who works with the charity Teenage Cancer Trust. Beth is a senior specialist nurse working with young cancer patients. Together, we're going to discuss cancer diagnosis in young people, the issue with misdiagnosis and the impact of diagnosis. Welcome, David and Beth. Thank you for joining our podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Great, thanks. So to start, I'd like to provide some background to my interest in this area. I've been doing medical negligence work for about 12 years. Um, and I've al always been surprised by the amount of cases where the prime concern is the time it's taken for a child, um, a teenager or a young adult to have been diagnosed with cancer. There seems to be a reoccurring theme of delay uh, or symptoms not being taken seriously because of the false reassurance of the patient's young age. Now, in my experience, this will often involve the GP who might reassure the parent and send them on their way when the child has in fact got a symptom that necessitates further investigation. And by the time of diagnosis, the patient then often requires more intensive treatment than ought to have been necessary, um, or in the most tragic of cases, they've been rendered incurable because of the delay. So against this background, it would be helpful to get a sense of the frequency of this problem, the reasons it occurs, and perhaps some insight on what might be done to ensure that people are receiving a timely diagnosis. I then like to explore the impact of such a diagnosis on a young person and how that differs to adults. So David, starting with you, if I may, and, and just so we can make sure that we're all working to the same markers, what age ranges are we typically referencing when we talk about young people with cancer and what, what parameters did the studies use? Age uh, 0 to 18 years is uh, normally the young people's bracket. Although the teenage and young adults extend from 13 to 24 years um, for health service organisation. Um, so those are the two main age groups. 0 to 18 is um, that's the legal restraint uh, definition of youth. And then 13 to 24, the health service now have units uh, in order to meet their needs of, as people having treatment for cancer. Thank you. And Beth, does this accord with the patients that you see in your daily practice? Yes, yeah, it does. So back to you, David, in your clinical practice. Are you able to give us some guidance on how common cancers are in this young population? Yeah, this is something that's difficult to put your finger on for many practitioners in their training, uh, because statistics are quoted a number of cases for 100,000 members of the population. And that's quite a difficult uh, concept to grasp. And of course, people don't see many children with cancer in their daily work. But we've done some work recently that expresses the risk of cancer to the, from the young person's perspective rather than from the population's perspective. And uh, by the age of one, your risk of getting cancer is about one in four and a half thousand. So it's really very rare. However, by the age of five, your risk of getting cancer is one in a thousand. And most of those are acute lymphatic leukemia. By the age of 10, it's one in 600. By the age of 15, 
it's one in 400. And by the age of 24, it's one in 200. So from the young person's perspective, your risk of getting cancer by the time you become an adult is really quite significant. We all know 200 people and somebody will have had cancer during that during that first part of their life. And so I think this is one of the things that we're communicating as part of a national campaign to raise awareness that actually cancer is not as rare as you think. In fact, we've concluded four main things. One is the risk of cancer is more common for the young person than it is for the doctor. Because modern general practice, doctors, you don't all see the same person every time. So they're all coming and doing sessions. So the number of cases they'll see will be diluted by the amount of time they spend in the clinic. And if they're doing a half-time job, they won't be seeing as many people. But for the young person, that risk is ever present. The second thing is that no one wants to miss it. No GP wants to miss cancer. And so, so really people have to, although it's a rare event, they need to keep it in their head. One of the things they found is that if you go to the doctor three times without a diagnosis within a three month period, your risk of getting cancer is 10 times more likely. And so if you have multiple visits to the doctor with set of symptoms that no one makes a diagnosis of, after two or three visits, being referred in seemed to be the right thing to do. Finally, in general practice, particularly for young children, the GPs can do almost no tests in their surgery. They can't do blood tests, they can't order x-rays, and they don't actually measure the weight and height of children routinely in general practice after the first year of life. And these are all important steps to making a diagnosis. And so diagnosis relies upon a referral. And a referral can either be a routine referral, so may have a two, three, four week gap before they actually see a paediatrician, or it may be going via the emergency room. And actually, in, in reality, the majority of children with cancer are diagnosed in the emergency room. There is a system in the UK called the Cancer Referral Pathway, and it's very infrequent that cancer in childhood is diagnosed within the Cancer Referral Pathway. So the final thing, advice, is that long-standing practice is if you're not sure, pick up a phone and ask an expert. And uh, so we encourage GPs to pick up the phone and speak to the local paediatrician who can then help you making a rapid referral if the symptoms justify it. So those are the main messages we're putting out about that particular issue. Thank you, David. That's a really comprehensive answer. And you, you, you mentioned then that the, your own research into this area and some, some projects um, that are being worked on. Are you able to reference those just in case any of the listeners would, would like to have a look at those? Yeah, I got involved in this uh, about 15 years ago, largely by working in medical legal practice and having the same experience you summarised from a lawyer's perspective. I was looking at it from the doctor's perspective. And uh, a neurosurgeon and myself, Jonathan Punt, who became a barrister in his second career, were sitting down talking about the delays in diagnosis we were seeing with children. And um, he and I said, well, it's all very well doing the legal cases. Is there something we could do about this? And uh, Jonathan said, well, all we need to do is find a way of them having a brain scan. And uh, so that's what we set out to do. And we we ran a project over about 10 years, uh, which initially looked at the did a systematic literature review of the symptoms of brain tumour. Then we stratified the information by age and 
uh, various genetic features and the anatomical location of the tumour in the brain. And then we con consulted with 100 practitioners in a Delphi consensus process where we agreed on what the right steps were using modern knowledge. And then we published a, a guideline for the College of Pediatrics and Child Health and the College of Nursing and etc. And then we launched a, an awareness campaign called HeadSmart, which is based upon all that work. And HeadSmart was launched in uh, 2012. And it was shown, that process was shown to halve the referral interval uh, across the UK from a median of 14.5 weeks to a, a median of 6.9 weeks over a five-year period. So we were, by running a campaign using this sort of evidence base, we were able to halve the symptom interval prior to diagnosis for the whole country. We were very pleased and we didn't expect it to be as effective as it was. So we're now running a second campaign called Child Cancer Smart and we're doing the data collecting for that at the moment for the rest of childhood cancer, leukemia, solid tumours as well as brain tumours. And so that was is on in process at the moment and is and will continue to develop over the next two or three years. To what extent would you say that those um, that the frequency of cancer in young people is understood and appreciated by the general population? Well, we've done a survey in this and people when we give those statistics that I quoted earlier, people are surprised at frequency. So people underestimate it, doctors underestimate it, and the public underestimate it. And all the public messaging about cancer has been directed at adult cancer. And so if you ask people what the symptoms of cancer are in young people, they quote the ones for adults, not for children. And so that's why the campaigns we're running at the moment are trying to replace that knowledge with more accurate knowledge, because you need to understand the symptoms of leukemia in a three-year-old, and it's not the same as the symptoms in an adult patient in their, in their 30s, because three-year-olds have completely different view of the world and they're growing and developing and they have different features. So you have to tailor it to the young person. Of course, and on that note, are you able to give any examples of cases you've seen where symptoms have been ignored or mistaken for another condition or injury? Well, in brain tumours particularly, the common presenting feature is headaches. Uh, and uh, so headaches uh, happen to all of us. And headaches on their own is not a very good sign of deciding who to do a brain scan because there's lots of people have headaches. But if you have headaches and vomiting, then you really need to start thinking there may be raised pressure. If you have headaches, vomiting and funny eye movements, then that's three things. And then you really need a brain scan. So it's about clusters of symptoms rather than any single symptom. And it's understanding that they can change quite rapidly. The other thing is that raised pressure in the head often produces fluctuating symptoms. So you have headaches for a while and then they get better and then they come back again, they get better. And that's not always appreciated as a pattern. One of the things that's been shown is that doctors can sometimes make errors by getting fixed on one idea and don't stand back and say, I thought about that idea, what else could it be? and then reinvestigating those other things. But once they get fixed in one idea, sometimes they find it difficult to get off that track. And that's the psychological phenomenon. The other thing is that young doctors are actually better at referring than old doctors. Older doctors tend to say, well, things get better. We'll wait and see. And young doctors are more anxious and they tend to do more tests and they tend to have a shorter time to, to referral. So that's counterintuitive. We all think the experienced doctor would be better off, but with these things, it's not necessarily the case. I say that as an older doctor. 
Thank you, David. Um, Beth, turning to you, if I may, uh, you are a specialist nurse with vast experience of treating young people with cancer. What would you say are the major impacts of a cancer diagnosis on such patients um, that perhaps may differ from the adult population? Well, I think specifically the psychological complexities um, that young people face when they're diagnosed with cancer are monumental. I mean, it presents unique developmental challenges for both them and their families. I mean, adolescence is already a really challenging time for a young person because they're undergoing rapid physical, cognitive, psychological and social changes. So to have a cancer diagnosis thrown into that mix on top of everything that they're already dealing with, you know, can be sometimes catastrophic for them from a psychological um, standpoint. There's so many aspects of a young person's life that having a cancer diagnosis can impact on. So, for example, things like body image. Body image for a young person, you know, is is huge for them. And, you know, with a diagnosis of cancer, um, a lot of the time they have um, consequences to their body image, whether that be surgery, whether it be lines inserted and scarring from those types of things. You know, sometimes they're started on steroids, which make them put on a lot of weight. So especially around their face and their abdomen, um, often with that comes um, stretch marks, which, you know, can be permanent that they may have for the rest of their life. And, you know, I've worked with many young um, young people that have stretch marks and then they're utterly devastated because they feel that they can never wear a bikini again. Also, the other thing with regard to body image is hair loss, which is huge for young people. Uh, it's something that can be really traumatising to the point that I've had several young people say to me that that is the most important thing they're concerned about over and above having a cancer diagnosis, which you may find surprising, but that is something, um, especially for young um, for young young girls who have spent years and years growing their hair really long, the idea of it all falling out and having to be seen without any hair um, is hugely traumatic, losing their eyebrows, eyelashes, etc. Their physical appearance at that age is really, really important. So we do have access to things like wigs that, that, that we can arrange for them to have, um, which, which does help. But it's not ideal because, you know, during the summer months, uh, their hair gets, their head gets really hot and sticky. Um, and sometimes people can tell that it's a wig. Sometimes they can't. We, you know, we, we do work with um, charities that, that that do make really good real hair wigs. And also just to mention, even though I mentioned about the girls, it can also be really traumatic for the young boys as well. I did work with one young man who refused to go to school um, until his hair had fully grown back. He didn't want anyone to see him without having any hair. It has an impact on their relationships with their friends, so peer relationships, um, because they're, they're missing out on all of the other things that their friends are doing. They're all going out having fun. Um, and, you know, for long periods of time, these young people aren't able to do that. Then, of course, there's intimate relationships um, and the effect that, you know, a cancer diagnosis will have on them being able to participate in certain types of sex their place in society, um, of course, the impact that it has on their education. So if, if they're in education, they will undoubtedly miss lots of that education. Sometimes young people try to keep up with the education, but then, of course, when they come to take exams and things like that, they aren't going to get the results that they would have been able to achieve had they not undergone all of the cancer treatment. The impact that it has on their work, so if they're working, sometimes they have to stop working. That, of course, then has an impact on their finances. Travelling to and from hospital, of course, is expensive and all the appointments, it's not just coming in for their chemotherapy, they're coming in for regular scans and blood tests and 
it's it's like an ongoing process so it does have a huge impact on not only their lives but their families because how are they getting to and from hospital somebody has to bring them does that mean that the, one of the parents has to give up work and then of course that that also has um a financial impact on on the family so you know a cancer diagnosis at, at this time is is very different from a cancer diagnosis at, at another time so yeah it's it's certainly a very challenging time for young people thank you and beth in your patient facing role do you come across difficulties in the health system that can lead to delays in treating young people with cancer I mean, I think there always has been delays in the health system, which, you know, is is a very sad thing. I mean, and especially with the impact that COVID has had, you know, that obviously has had a huge impact. We, you know, we had one patient where she presented to healthcare, to, to various different healthcare people. So firstly to the GP, then to physiotherapy, and then ending up um, in A&E. 16 times before she was actually referred to us as the cancer treating centre and unfortunately by that time her disease was widespread so she had metastatic cancer which was at that point incurable. I mean that is an unusual scenario but that is something that I have seen recently which of course is terrible. Thank you. David can you add to that? Um, What do you feel are the the difficulties faced by the healthcare sector in relation to cancer diagnosis in young people? I think actually Beth has described uh, very, very successfully the impact on the young people. Uh, it is a dramatic change in people's life expectant life expectations. Suddenly, all at once, they're all travelling on quite. They've got plans for their education, their their um, what their plans for the future, and suddenly it's all thrown out of the door, and they have to reformulate a whole plan for their life. And they have to reformulate relationships that they were in the process of changing. Because the normal thing for young people is to gradually leave their families. And this often throws them back on their families. And that creates a lot of pressure on both sides of the story. And best description of that is is, resonates with my experience of observing people. I was interested about the COVID issue because we were interested in whether COVID would alter the referral practice of children with cancer. And we did a study, which we've published now in the BMJ, showing that actually it had very little impact on children's diagnosis. Uh, but I think for older people, for the older age group, the young adult, it did have an impact because uh, the health system was organized for children up to the age of 16 to 18, and is organized for, for adults from 16 to 90. And the health systems for the 16 to 90 year olds were thrown up in the air by COVID because the whole place, all the hospitals became the giant intensive care units and everything was slowed up. But the children's services tried to keep going. And our study, we looked at uh, referrals in Nottingham, um, Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh and, uh, and Leeds. And we'd found that there weren't significant changes to the year before COVID. So I think the paediatric oncologists generally still manage to make their diagnoses in a timely way, although there were subtle changes in the way people appeared in the system. With regard to GPs, I think that it's it's quite, um, I think it's important to remember that when young people present to their GP, 
it's often a warning sign in itself because young people generally don't present to their GP whereas children on the other hand you know as a parent you might see that there's something wrong with your child and you'll take your child along to the GP but for a young person to actually think you know that actually there's something wrong with me that that in itself is is quite unusual because you know young people don't generally go to the GPs they sort of brush it off and, and move on. No I agree with you entirely Beth I think um... One of the things that I got involved in a training program for adolescent medicine in Australia and uh, and they were training the receptionists and general practices to to manage young people when they came to the primary care setting and to be very aware that how they spoke to them would determine their behaviour because it's a very grown up thing going to the general practitioner. You all have to be very restrained and, and young people by nature are looking for quick responses they want it to meet their needs. They're not terribly patient for sitting in hours and waiting rooms and being asked lots of questions they don't think are relevant. And so the the whole business of how you make general practice or primary care contact acceptable to a young person, I think, is something that we all that everybody needs to work on. There are very good systems in many places for young people's health clinics particularly for sexual advice and they adopt a completely different approach to how they accept people in because they're dealing with the the intimate nature of of sexual relations and they're very well organized but many primary care centers don't have the same attitude and so i think part of the the part of the delay is the system environment as well as the individual doctor's consultation and so I think that's something that is probably needs to be aware of. Beth, if we can turn our focus to the support available for young cancer patients, can you talk a little bit about the work that is done by Teenage Cancer Trust? Yeah, so Teenage Cancer Trust is an amazing charity who's done, you know, huge amounts of work for young people with cancer over the last, gosh, 25 plus years. It started with the initiation of a teenage cancer specific unit um, at the Middlesex Hospital in, in London, um, where I was fortunate enough to work. Um, so that was the first ever unit. And then um, over a period of time, um, they've expanded that to, to several u- units across the country. Um, so they are what we call the, the primary treatment centres. So every young person with cancer um, should be referred and through the primary treatment centre. So if they're under 18, they should be actually treated at the primary treatment centre. Um, if they're between the ages of um, 18 and 24, they get they should be given a choice of, of where they, they are treated, i.e. at the primary treatment centre or at another designated hospital. Treatment centres are centres where you have a level of expertise because you're treating more young people, therefore you have, you know, you, you gain that expertise in looking after young people with cancer. And within the primary treatment centres, you have um, a, a range of staff who are highly qualified in looking after young people with cancer ranging from consultants to nurses to um, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, um, etc. You, you have a, a multidisciplinary team of people who are all focused on looking after young people with cancer. And most of the time, that is a lot of what they do all day, every day. Um, so, in you know, that therefore, because it's something that, that they are doing all the time, you build up a level of expertise. So, Many of these posts are actually funded by Teenage Cancer Trust. So, for example, a lot of specialist nursing posts are funded by Teenage Cancer Trust. I also forgot to mention that the youth worker posts 
so youth workers um, can have a huge impact on young people when they're in hospital um, when they're feeling really low and down and in a cubicle on their own and they have nothing to do the role of the youth worker is to to go in and help provide activities and talk to the young people um, and often the young people will actually open up and talk to the youth worker about what their concerns are um, so yeah so as I say Teenage Cancer Trust um, does actually fund various posts they also help to fund outreach nursing posts where that's where nurses can actually go out and do visits into the community setting um, or, or to, to, to visit people in other designated hospitals to provide support in that way so that that's one part of what Teenage Cancer Trust does Another part of what Teenage Cancer Trust does is supporting the staff that actually work for them um, by providing education and resources. You know, having funded staff away days where we actually go away and we're taught various things and given updates on, you know, new advances, new treatments, new technologies, etc. Um, there's also the work that Teenage Cancer Trust does for young people. So Teenage Cancer Trust has a fabulous website um, where young people can go to access support um, with, uh, you know, lots of signposting going on to other charities. Um, because, of course, there are some other fabulous charities as well that support young people with cancer. Teenage Cancer Trust also put on events for young people with cancer. Um, so there's one event that's called Find Your Sense of Tumour. Um, so they do an under 18s event and an over 18s event. So that happens once a year. And that's an opportunity for young people with cancer to all come together. So it's usually in a venue somewhere. And it's kind of like a conference style event. So whereas, you know, during the day they have various speakers and then in the evening, it's a chance for the young people to let their hair down um, and they have they hire a DJ. Um, and the young people, you know, can get together and, and meet other young people that are in a similar situation. And, you know, I've, I've been um, fortunate enough to attend Find Your Sense of Humour many, many times. And, you know, the young, pe the young people find it so valuable um, being able to talk to other young people that are in a similar situation. Because although, um, you know, we've heard from David that it's cancer in young people isn't as rare as we might think sometimes for young people they do feel extremely isolated because sometimes when they come into hospital it may be that they might only be seeing you know older people with cancer so, so to come to, to a venue where you've got 200 300 um, young people all with cancer in the same place um, the opportunities that that gives to the young people to actually meet other young people and actually share their experiences and actually have somebody that knows what it is that they're going through because they might be going through it themselves and I think that that's one thing that that young people speak about a lot is that sometimes they feel like people just don't understand what they're going through uh, it's something that I hear all the time you know they may have really good friendships really strong friendships but their friends don't understand what they're going through because they don't see it on a day-to-day -day basis. They aren't seeing all the side effects. Often when the young person's in hospital, they don't want their friends to visit because they don't want them to see them in that way. So, so they really have no idea. And it's not their friend's fault um, because, you know, often they want to do everything they can to support the young person, but they just don't have an understanding of what they're going through and, and what their needs are. So, you know, part of my role is really encouraging the young person to talk to their friends and try and explain how they're feeling and also letting their friends know what they want from them, because it is difficult for, the, for friends and family to, to know what, what is the right thing to do. So, you know, that's something that I often talk to young people a lot about. Thank you, Beth. Clearly um, an incredible charity that offers uh, fantastic and much needed support. Thank you for that. 
Finally, David, is there a reason to be optimistic for the future in terms of oncology services and timely diagnosis? Uh, are you able to help us with re ongoing research that might provide hope for the future? Yeah, well, that's really what um, I I've finished being a clinician, so um, I'm no longer practicing. But uh, the work that I've continued to take an interest in is how to introduce um, systems for accelerating diagnosis for people with young people with cancer of all types. And the HeadSmart program that I spoke about earlier was the first experience of doing that worldwide, actually. There have been other initiatives to do with testicular cancer that's particularly relevant to young, young men. Uh, retinoblastoma, uh, uh, which is an eye tumour that occurs in families. Uh, they had run, uh, so the testicular tumour awareness program ran about 10 or 15 years ago because young, and I think most young people at school are told about that and uh, they get that experience. Um, there's training at schools in breast cancer awareness for the young ladies. The screening program is introduced um, uh, in young people's health education at school because those are all important factors. But the types of cancer that more commonly occur in the young people's age group aren't normally addressed specifically because of their relative rarity as individual tumour types. And so we've been running this campaign called Child Cancer Smart, and we're gathering data on the symptomatology of each of the tumour types. And we've got um, we're going to try and enhance the guidance for general practitioners uh, to make it immediately available online and to give uh, carefully graded instructions as to when to refer and when to observe. One of the things that was successful in the HeadSmart program, uh, because when we were developing the HeadSmart program, everybody says, are you going to create a crisis by everybody wanting a brain scan suddenly? And we took that risk very seriously. And so our guidance contained graded statements. So these, these symptoms need immediate referral within 48 hours. These symptoms you might observe for a couple of weeks and see if they go away. And these symptoms, you can reassure them and say they don't need to worry. So there were graded statements. And I don't know whether you, <clears throat> and that's quite unusual in cancer awareness programs. If you think about the lung cancer one, which is a cough for more than six weeks, you just go and, there's no graded statement. Uh, it's just go and get a chest X-ray. Uh, the, the stroke one, if you have a slight weakness, stroke, if they, every time they ran a big campaign with stroke, they used to, the stroke units used to be flooded out with people who'd had funny turns that were not, and so it overwhelmed them. And so they, how you do this grading advice is really, really important. And we think we got it right with the brain tumour campaign for two reasons. One, it, we speeded up the diagnosis. And secondly, we didn't overwhelm the systems with loads of people having unnecessary brain scans. But we worried about it before we launched the campaign. So therefore, it didn't happen. And I think uh, I think we're in a position looking forward that because of rising awareness, people are going to get better at this. And we have a way in the legal process of saying, yes, something definitely has gone wrong and um, and the law can try and do something about that with either saying, yes, there is a view that you could have done things better and this is the compensation. Uh, and the other approach is mediation is that 
is that you can sit down together and have a structured conversation where you understand why things went wrong and the person to whom it's happened listens to the people whether they've learned something because most families when something's gone wrong they sometimes the kids are very damaged and they need compensation but most families want somebody to say hold the hand up and say we could have done that better we're not going to do it like that again and most families would be reassured by that and i think that that's i've certainly learned a lot by working in the medical legal field because that's what really the headsmart program came out of so that was could we do this better and I think that because we're thinking about it in this way, things will get better, but it's gradual and it's not it's not a press button solution because it's very complex. Uh, and young people stop being young people when they're 18 to 24, they become adults. And so they're always in Western worlds in the high income countries. Children generally make up less than 20 percent of the population. So general practitioners are always fairly inexperienced in the management of young people because it's their less than 20 percent of their of their list. Uh, and they tend to be much more experienced in the elderly. Uh, uh, in Europe, the way the systems work for children under 12, most Euro in Europe, mostly they see pediatricians first rather than general practitioners. But in our country, they see the GP for all ages, cradle to grave concept. And so, and the and the GPs can't investigate. They have no access to investigations. They may well know what they'd like to do, but to get anything done, they have to send them to hospital, and that introduces a delay. Children's cancer grows very fast. When children come, a young person comes in with cancer, they've got a low a volume of tumor that puts their life at risk when they arrive in the hospital, and puts them at risk if it's near their brain of acquiring disability. If I was to say what was the most hopeful thing in the future, I think we probably will screen all young people for their cancer risk around the time of birth within the next 10 years. And so that will be a game changer. And certainly for the problems in the first five to 10 years of life, and many of them could be detectable with modern science really much earlier. And I think that will pose a major change in practice. That's what we're writing about at the moment. We screen everybody for inborn errors of metabolism. There's a condition called phenylketonuria, MCAD deficiency, hypothyroidism, cystic fibrosis. And within a, a month or two, they get the answer. And if they need to go on a special diet, they go on a special diet to avoid the brain injury or to start the treatment early. I suspect that sort of approach start to develop in children's cancer. There are already a lot of genetic messages that we can detect very early in life that could help us with that, either by targeted imaging so that people get uh, screening examinations or by blood tests or saliva tests that allow you to monitor for the molecular changes that are gradually evolving. And so the diagnosis may be made before they're critically ill. Thank you, David. That's really positive and reassuring. And uh, and thank you also for your contribution to what will hopefully be a, a much more optimistic future when it comes to diagnosis of cancer in young people. On that note, I will wrap things up. Beth, David, thank you for joining me on our podcast today and helping to shine some light on this issue and also the fantastic work done by Teenage Cancer Trust. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. 
If you found it interesting, please do join us for our next episode. Stay safe.